Chapter Twenty Three of Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume Two, by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope K. Chapter Twenty Three, Amanda, Dorothy, Lord Herbert. So also did Amanda, but not the less did she cherish feelings of revenge against her whom she more than suspected of having been the contriver of her harmful discomfiture. She felt certain that Dorothy had laid the snare into which they had fallen, with the hope if not the certainty of catching just themselves two in it, and she read in her, therefore, jealousy and cruelty as well as coldness and treachery. Roland, on the other hand, was inclined to attribute the mishap to the displeasure of Lord Herbert, whose supernatural acquirements, he thought, had enabled him both to discover and punish their intrusion. Amanda, nevertheless, kept her own opinion, and made herself henceforth all eyes and ears for Dorothy, hoping ever to find a chance of retaliating, if not in kind, yet in plentiful measure of vengeance. Dorothy's odd ways, lawless movements, and what the rest of the ladies counted her vulgar tastes, had for some time been the subject of remark to the gossiping portion of the castle community, and it seemed to Amanda that in watching and discovering what she was about, when she supposed herself safe from the eyes of her equals and superiors, lay her best chance of finding a mode of requital. Nor was she satisfied with observation, but kept her mind busy on the trail, now of one, now of another vague-bodied revenge. The charge of low tastes was founded upon the fact that there was not an artisan about the castle, from Caspar downwards, whom Dorothy did not know and address by his name. But her detractors, in drawing their conclusions from it, never thought of finding any related significance in another fact, namely, that there was not a single animal either, of consequence enough to have a name, which did not know by it. There were very few of the animals indeed, which did not know her in return, if not by her name, yet by her voice or her presence, some of them even by her foot or her hand. She would wander about the farmyard and stables for an hour at a time, visiting all that were there, and specially her little horse, which she had long, oh, so long ago, named Dick, nor had taken his name from him any more than from Marquis. The charge of lawlessness in her movements was founded on another fact as well, namely, that she was often seen in the court after dusk, and that not merely in running across to the keep, as she would be doing at all hours, but loitering about in full view of the windows, it was not denied that this took place only when the organ was playing, but then, who played the organ, was not the poor afflicted boy, barring the blank of his eyes, beautiful as an angel? And was not Mistress Dorothy too deep to be fathomed? And so the tattling streams flowed on, and the ears of Mistress Amanda willingly listened to their music. Nor did she disdain herself to contribute to the reservoir in which those of the castle, whose souls thirsted after the minutiae of live biography, accumulated their stores of fact and fiction, conjecture and falsehood. Lord Herbert came home to bury his little one, and all that was left behind of her was borne to the church of St. Caracus, the parish church of Raglan, and there laid beside the Marquise's father and mother. He remained with them a fortnight, and his presence was much needed to lighten the heavy gloom that had settled over both his wife and his father. As if it were not enough to bury the bodies of the departed, there are many, and the Marquis and his daughter-in-law were of the number, who in a sense seek to bury their souls as well, making a graveyard of their own spirits, 
and laying the stone of silence over the memory of the dead. Such never speak of them, but when compelled, and then almost as if to utter their names were an act of impiety. Not in memoriam, but in oblivionum, should be the inscription upon the tombs they raise. The memory that forsakes the sunlight, like the fishes in the underground river, loses its eyes. The cloud of its grief carries no rainbow. Behind the veil of its twin future burns no lamp, fringing its edges with the light of hope. I can better, however, understand the hopelessness of the hopeless than their calmness along with it. Surely they must be upheld by the presence within them of that very immortality against whose aurora they shut to their doors, then mourn as if there were no such thing. Radiant as she was by nature, Lady Margaret, when sorrow came, could do little towards her own support. The Marquis said to himself, I am growing old and cannot smile at grief so well as once on a day. Sorrow is a hawk more fell than I had thought. The name of little Molly was never mentioned between them, but sudden floods of tears were the signs of the mother's remembrance, and the outbreak of ambushed sighs, which he would make haste to attribute to the gout, the signs of the grandfathers. Dorothy, too, belonged in tendency to the class of the unspeaking. Her nature was not a bright one. Her spirit's day was evenly, softly lucent, like one of those clouded, calm, grey mornings of summer, which seem more likely to end in rain than sunshine. Lord Herbert was of a very different temperament. He had hope enough in his one single nature to serve the whole castle, if only it could have been shared. The veil between him and the future glowed as if on fire with mere radiance, and about to vanish in flame. It was not that he, more than one of the rest, imagined he could see through it. For him it was enough that beyond it lay the luminous. His eyes, to those that looked on him, were lighted with its reflex. Such as he are, by those who love them not, misjudged as shallow. Depth to some is indicated by gloom, and affection by a persistent brooding, as if there were no homage to the past of love save sighs and tears. When they meet a man whose eyes shine, whose step is light, on whose lips hovers a smile, they shake their heads and say, there goes one who has never loved, and who therefore knows not sorrow. And the man is one of those over whom death has no power, whom time nor space can part from those he loves, who lives in the future more than in the past. Has not his being ever been for the sake of that which was yet to come? Is not his being now for the sake of that which it shall be? Has he not infinitely more to do with the great future than the little past? The past has descended into hell, is even now ascending glorified, and will, in returning cycle, ever and again greet our faith as the more and yet more radiant future. But even Lord Herbert had his moments of sad longing after his dainty Molly. Such moments, however, came to him not when he was at home with his wife, but when he rode alone by his troops on a night march, or when, upon the eve of an unexpected battle, he sought sleep that he might fight the better on the morrow. End of chapter 23 Recording by Hope K